how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 462, where I sit down with Scott McConnell. Scott's a story consultant and script developer who helps ambitious producers and screenwriters develop their concepts, themes, and plots. Known as the Story Guy, Scott has over 30,000 followers on LinkedIn, where he frequently publishes advice on writing screenplays and producing films. In this interview, we talk about Scott's love for visual storytelling, how most novice screenplays miss theme altogether, his secret for researching historical scripts, where to find copyright-free material, omissions and story, the beauty of Star Trek, how to craft work the market actually wants to buy, and much more. You could reach out to Scott at on LinkedIn, or stay tuned for the end where he actually gives away his email and a special service to the listeners. Well, it goes back a long way, and I won't um, reveal the very start, because I probably didn't know, but I always had an interesting story. I loved reading books. I loved reading comics as a kid. I always had an imagination. I was one of those uh, daydreamers that sat up the back and uh, didn't do much schoolwork except uh, imagine things. But then um, I finally got, uh, I was in my, I was, you know, after years of work, I finally saved enough money to uh, to uh, move to the United States, which I don't had wanted to do since I was a little kid. And so then I moved there and uh, studied uh, screenwriting at UCLA Extension, moved into the industry, but unfortunately had some terrible visa problems and issues. So I was in and out of the industry for a while. But basically, I just love story and uh, visual story in film um, is very exciting to me. And I dare say that I think screenwriting is easier than novel writing. So that's where I went. Is there a difference, um, maybe tonally or something like that, between American movies and Australian movies? Uh, there is. Um, American movies, more than tone, are, are, are focus on a very classic structure, whereas Australia is probably more naturalistic and or slash realistic in the stories and tone. Probably more, a little bit more weird, a little bit more out there. Australians and American films, I think, are in a bit of a nadir at the moment. The Australian films, you know, up to the early, just the start of this century, there were a lot of very clever, imaginative ones. But now they're that's less so. But but then it's the same in Hollywood. So there is a difference in sensibility. It's a probably darker in Australia. It's probably, as I said, more naturalistic um, and probably more because of the way films are funded here, probably pushing more of a certain cultural agenda. Hmm. Where do you find your own work and the scripts you've written? Is there like a certain thing that is your signature when it comes to writing a screenplay? Um, well, these days I more edit screenplays than uh, write. I, I still do write, but uh, I've called my, I call my stories generally that I write um, adventure stories with a theme. And, you know, so I write quite a few historical pieces. I'm working, for example, on two pieces at the moment, one in World War II, one in the during the uh, founding the several months before Israel was founded. So I've uh, influenced by 
big stories, uh, big concepts, big uh, ideas, that kind of stuff. And uh, I particularly like history and adventure. It sounds like it takes a lot of research. Where do you used to kind of start with research <laughs> when you have an idea like that? No, that's a great question because uh, it amazes me that some writers seem to use other movies as the base of their research. I spend three to six months to uh, research a story. And I find, especially not only because they're historical, but if I even do a modern one, you have to, I find the, the best research is to get into first-person accounts of uh, people who actually lived in the period. For example, um, when I've done uh, World War II stories before, I would uh, go to uh, archives and I would read the journals and diaries and records and notes of actual people who were in, say, Changi prisoner of war camp in uh, Singapore during World War II. Or if I was doing a Western, which I did once, uh, I would read the first-hand accounts and of uh, people in that period and the um, detail you get and stuff you, you never see in movies is amazing and I, I will add that it's generally better to do research not only from the period but uh, from older histories of the time uh, a lot of history today is you know politicized and whitewashed and and changed so uh, I don't trust it so much so I found that um you know, on Google Books and on other uh, uh, certain websites, you can download free books from, say, the 1880s and read those accounts of what it was like in the Old West from people who were writing about it at the time or were experiencing it at the time. And that firsthand type of research is uh, incalculable as uh, how good it can or how much it can improve your story. I think there's one called uh, Project Gutenberg that has a lot of free downloads too. And, and when you go back so far, are you also able, if you wanted to adapt something, I mean, a lot of that stuff is copyright free. Is that something you think about at all? Yeah, that's one of my gigs actually, is that I um, find uh, uh, materials, great stories in the public domain and pitch those to uh, people in Hollywood, for example. And uh, yes, it's a, I'm a bit confused on the legality, but when I was doing it a lot, say 10 years ago when I started it, it was every story that was published in the United States before 1923. So I presume that date has changed. I'm not sure. But uh, yes, that, those stories are free and open. It's um, to uh, people to take and to adapt and so forth. But the catch is that that's open to everybody. So you have to do an adaption in an adaptation, I should say, in a certain way uh, that makes the story your own. So someone else just can't take the source material and just use it to their own benefit and uh, kick you out of the team, as it were. Yeah, I think it's something like a hundred years, and then it's like, but you, but if you use Beauty and the Beast, for example, you couldn't use the Disney version. You have to go find the original fairy tale. I think is is part of the the idea behind that. So you mentioned like you do more editing now. What what typically are you doing? Are you working with clients? What is your job today? You're listed as a script consultant, but what does that consist of? Well, it's a tricky question because I'm actually based in Australia at the moment. And now with the internet and so forth, in each country, 
uh, there's a different term or title for the type of work I do. But basic, you know, there can be script assessor, script consultant, story consultant, um, script editor, and so forth. So what I basically do is work with either production companies or writers and, you know, and um, take their scripts generally, sometimes their concepts, sometimes their synopses, sometimes even a treatment. And I would read those and there's two main aspects uh, to the work. You First, you have to find, and the more fundamental level you find it, the better. You have to find what the weaknesses and mistakes and, and most often what the omissions are in, in the story. And then what producers especially like and need, sure, they want to know what the problems are, but and sometimes, you know, the writer has to jump onto that. But often what they want is solutions. So you read the story, you find the fundamental problems, you offer suggestions of how these can be fixed. And so, you know, I also work with um, individual writers, so it depends what they want. They can basically hire me in any way to work on their story. Some like that in notes, some like that in the notes in the script or summary notes. Others like it as a verbal discussion and so forth. So there's many basic ways to do it, but the bottom line is that they want you to make their story better so they can have a stronger career or sell the story or develop their writing skills and so forth. Do you see commonalities between those in terms of what the problems may be or is each one kind of unique in its own? Um. That's a good question. There's a lot of commonality in problems, but there's two markets. There's there's the professional market and there's the amateur market. By the amateur market, I mean people who aren't in the industry as professional screenwriters and are trying to break in. And there's the professional market of um, people who are working in the industry, either as writers or producers, and they you know, working on a story they want to get funding for and so forth. So it depends who you're working for who I'm working for. So in the amateur market, there's a lot of problems. It stuns me that uh, there's so many writers that in their subconscious, in the in the way that they coagulate or integrate or get a story going is not based on free will. They they give their, their characters, their characters are very determined where they're like in, in some ancient Greek story where the gods are throwing bricks onto their heads in, in the sense of they don't have agency and drive the story. And uh, the, the writer's driving the story by throwing these contrived bricks on their head. So that's a big problem. And, you know, that turns into some kind of unbelievable or false uh, chronicle type of story. That's a, a huge problem with a lot of new writers. Whereas with the professional writers, it's, it's very interesting. And I don't think I've ever had a good writer who didn't have a problem with theme. And mm. theme is where you really can add depth to your writing, where you can really uh, make it stand out. And it's, it's a deeper form of writing, a harder form of writing. But uh, And so skilled writers often really struggle with it. And so I, that's a specialty of mine is theme. Like with uh, I work with developing concept, developing theme, especially developing, helping them develop plotting, which is also very difficult, and uh, applying dramatic devices, you know, like mystery, suspense, um, uh, uh, deception, and so forth to their stories. Do you think there's something about so those newer writers that are kind of writing with a lack of free will? I mean, a lot of that is coming out of the writer. Do you, do you see things in certain waves of the zeitgeist, like 
millennials are writing this way or anything like that that kind of comes to mind? That's funny because um, I don't know about the zeitgeist in the sense of the the, the the times. I can't say that this newer generation is more deterministic in their storytelling. But what I can say is that uh, a lot often you'll find that it depends what uh, book or what theory or what uh, guru is popular at the time or in the in the zeitgeist or period and so forth. So, for example, in the last 10, 15 years or so, Save the Cat has really uh, dominated the market, I think, in the way that you see the writing uh, come through. And before that, it was Chris Fogler. And years ago, it was Sid Field. And, you know, there's obviously story with McKee. So these big gurus, uh, the big writers or the big conceptualizers of writing, they do have a they do have a big influence. And, you know, obviously, that goes back all the way to arguably the greatest influencer in history in, in many fields, but also in writing and understanding writing, that's Aristotle. So these books do have an influence. So that, that's what I see. I see a lot of people uh, using Save the Cat to work out their structure. And so that's positive and negative, uh, in the positive in the sense it gives uh, a creative uh, a, a springboard, a questions to ask and to work forward to creating their outline and their plot. But, you know, they're applying it all over the place as stories that it doesn't really work for. They're just using it as a mindless formula, similar to what we had in uh, literature before the romantics of the early 1800s, where the classicists had certain rules that you had to follow. And so that's the downside. It also seems like going back to your research, if everyone is just watching what's on today and trying to fit the market, they're they're aiming for this small target that's moving but you're you're leaning back and running historical pieces and reading works from the 40s or 1800s or you know all kinds of ways back it seems like you would be therefore also writing things that are more evergreen and not so precious to try to hit like a certain moment in history that's a good point i don't you know you've got to be aware of trends and what the market is you're in a market you you're not only a writer you're a business person you're trying to have a career you're trying to make money you're trying to these days have a brand and so forth. But, uh, you know, you should be creating trends or creating stories and, and so forth, not so much following them. But you have to be aware of it. For example, if Westerns go off a cliff as they did in the early 70s, you know, do you want to spend six months of your life writing a Western or do you want to write a sci-fi story after Star Wars exploded into the universe or, or Jaws. So you should be influenced in some ways like that, but not to how you write the story in the sense of a story really is an expression of your soul, of your values, of your belief system, of you. And so why would you want to write a story that you don't believe in or you don't care about? But back to your point about evergreen yeah i believe that there are certain principles universal principles of what makes a good story a good story concept and generally what would make a story popular and so forth so um following trends isn't going to help you know those great uh, story uh, principles so yeah i i'm very influenced by the writers of the 1800s you know the victor hugo's the ibsen's and and some of the the great adventure writers you know jules verne and 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 so forth they were marvelous writers then and very very creative they had a level of imagination 
that you generally don't have today. So you've got a, a pretty massive LinkedIn following. I'm looking at one of your articles now, Five Game Changers for Your Script, which is recently. To go back to what you were saying about theme, you've got a line here that says, if characters and events mean nothing, the audience will feel nothing. If you read a screenplay and the theme is missing, what do you start to do? Do you do you look for something that you can therefore spread through the script? Or is it more about having a conversation with the writer to see what they most care about? Um, it depends on the genre. Some genres are more uh, stressful and important with the theme. For example, dramas, it's absolutely fundamental for the character arcs, for the climax, for the even the events and choices of the characters that have a clear theme. But, you know, some movies have uh, more uh, regular themes. They can still be wonderful movies, you know, like Die Hard, for example, is a classic actioner, but its theme would simply be the battle for justice and love or something. Um, Westerns were all about justice, or most of them. You have some rare ones, or rarer ones, I should say, like High Noon that might be about a theme of integrity, which makes it a, a deeper movie with more ideas that resonate with the audience. So if I'm working with a, a writer, a serious writer that has a serious theme or idea, I try to get that pinned down. Um, one of the great keys in creativity and using your mind is the, de the, the expression, the devil is in the details. I don't agree with it. It's true. But the real thing is the, def the devil is in the definitions. And so when a writer is creating their story and working out their theme and working out their plot and everything, they have to really, especially with the theme, define it very carefully. So I would, for example, have my... Uh, clients, my, the writers and producers, whatever, I would discuss with them, if that's the type of uh, interaction we're having, discuss with them what is the theme. And I would really challenge them, really push them to get it down to about 20 words of some universal idea that's important and personal to life for everyone on the planet. And so then we would see how that influences, for example, the motivations or the internal conflict or the and the internal conflict of the hero, and how that especially influences the um, climactic choice in the climax at the end of the film. So there's a whole way of uh, developing in the story, but you've got to be clear exactly what it is, and it's got to be universal and important and personal. Otherwise, people just don't care. Yeah. What's what's something like a franchise, or the themes different, <laughs> or do they kind of carry over film to film? Like we talked a little before the call about. Um, Star Trek or James Bond, any, any, anything you want to talk about with those and maybe how theme relates back to franchises like that? Star Trek is, you know, one of the great marvels of and one of the greatest franchises in the history of TV and film and, and, uh, and novels, comics, everything, merchandise and so forth. And, you know, Gene Roddenberry, who invented and created Star Trek, was brilliantly imaginative. So he very deliberately worked out uh, certain themes and ideas that are pretty much dead today, uh, pretty much in the sci-fi uh, genre, pretty much uh, uh, rejected. For example, um, you know, Roddenberry, when he created, if people don't know the story, what he basically created with Star Trek was he took a TV show called Wagon Train, which was, you know, about a, a trekkers, the pioneers across the United States. And he adapted that in a certain sense to a, a, a Western in space. So his creative genius was to take all these 
old ideas and old uh, history things, add them to new science, and then added his personal philosophy. And this is where it uh, makes uh, things different. Gene Roddenberry and his part of his philosophy, one, he was very pro-American and, and pro-American in the sense of uh, the certain nature of Americans. And the, the key nature he did was optimism and benevolence. So uh, the original Star Treks are very positive stories. Uh, they have great drama and conflict. The values and stakes are incredibly high. But the hero, there are real heroes. They're, they're white-hatted heroes, you know, like uh, you would have in a Western. They are pioneers bringing goodness to the uh, universe or the galaxy, as it were. And what Roddenberry wanted to do was to take stories that had universal ideas and set them in space. And so he did that very, very successfully. Whereas today, the whole idea of sci-fi is the opposite. It's dystopian stories where they're showing the world in a dark and ugly and, and tragic place. It doesn't mean they can't be good stories. Many many of them are good stories, but that's a, that's a very big difference between the value set that Roddenberry had and the value set that uh, many sci-fi writers have today. Do you think that was, is that more meant for a television? I'm trying to think. I feel like films, I'm thinking of Star Wars, are naturally leaning into more of the hero's journey path. Do you think something like Star Trek would exist better in television today? Uh, Star Trek. Mm. Well, there are many offshoots of Star Trek today, and they're, they're not as original or as clever as dramatic it's well written in any sense i have to say compared to the original series now i think i don't think there's a separation between um tv internet and uh film regarding uh, why one story would be benevolent and one story would be malevolent um you can have both you both uh subgenres can have um uh, great stories and so forth but uh the uh, Star Trek is just reversed some of its premises as sci-fi has. It's it's gone on from that um, American benevolence and where the world is optimistic, where you can be a hero, where you can succeed, where you can have integrity and goodness and decency and do good in the world uh, and be a great pioneer like the, the Westerners. Uh, that That's just all changed. You, how many... Um, Sci-fi movies do you see today where you have characters like that? Not not many at all. We'd also and, and, uh, and kind of yeah, to kind of expand on that, do you want to talk a little about James Bond as well? And I think, you know, every couple of years there's rumors that Christopher Nolan's gonna take over the franchise. I saw that again the other day, but what are your thoughts on on the themes and the franchise of James Bond? Oh, it's a wonderful franchise in the sense of the novels. Um, the movies, uh, you have to pick your, your movies, which because they, they have, I would say, devolved over the years, gotten weaker and weaker. There have been some exceptions to that. The greatest uh, Bond movie, of, I think, is Dr. No, followed by uh, Goldfinger. But um, it's, a, it's a great franchise, but why? Why was it a fabulous franchise? Because when it... The first novel came out in 1953, and the first movie came out in 62. Um, it was new. He was the first time that you had a hero that had not only 
interesting traits and elements, but uh, had great contradictions in the characterization. For example, Bond is not a hard-boiled San Francisco detective. He's more of an upper-class, educated man. He goes to uh, elite clubs and gambles. He has special. Uh, he's a gourmand, drinking special. Uh, sorry, eating uh, uh, very uh, classy foods at the at an elite uh, card club, uh, Blades, for example. He. Fleming introduced for the first time in Britain uh, uh, the idea of women being sexual, that the Bond girls were a revelation and a, a great, great change in uh, literature. This was the first time, as far as I know, uh, except for uh, Mickey Splane in the United States, that women were uh, dramatised as sexual beings. And, as, and some of the heroines in the Bond stories, they're not as great as Bond, but they are women of great integrity, integrity, uh, intelligence, skill, and they, they have sex. And so a lot of things like that, um, you know, the villains, the high concepts of uh, the world coming to an end and so forth, they made those stories intensely dramatic and therefore have a lot of legs to make franchise, uh, a great franchise. Today, um, unfortunately, there's only one Bond novel that was never um, produced as a movie, that's Moonraker. It was was made a movie, but not based on the book. And so uh, that imagination and cleverness that Ian Fleming had has has disappeared. And uh, it's now more of a focus because of the times on action, special effects, violence, loud noises, and so forth. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but uh, yeah, it's it's part of the philosophy and zeitgeist of the times. We are not in the the 1950s. Uh, where America is beloved, where the American ideals of the pioneers and the um, right to life, liberty, uh, property and the pursuit of happiness are uh, well uh, known and uh, well loved uh, ideals and so forth. So today it's more of a cynicism and darkness and pulling pulling down heroes or heroes have to have grey hats and uh, not be confident like James Bond and so forth. Bond is supremely confident as a man, as, as, a, as a fighter for uh, freedom and as a lover. So you, that's not a common, uh, too big a, or a common theme in uh, movies today. Hmm. I actually interviewed um, James Trailer and Max Collins, who wrote a book on Mickey Spillane not long ago, and they kind of talked me into reading. I read I read Eye of the Jury recently. Do you have a favorite Ian Fleming novel you would encourage people to read? Oh, first on Max Collins, he's doing a great job at uh, developing the and releasing the last of Mickey Spillane's uh, novels. If anyone out there hasn't read Mickey Spillane, read his first five or six novels. There was a time the early 60s that Spillane was very castigated and criticized by the elite uh, you know snooty uh, art types as you know a terrible writer when in fact he was an excellent writer and he had in, in all the novels sold in the up to 1960 in the, that century he had six in the top 10 of bestsellers that's how popular and influential and he he influenced ian fleming ian fleming made some great quip uh once and when he was creating um ian uh james bond fleming made the quip that um james bond was bulldog drummond from the waist up 
and Mike Hammer from the waist down. And so Bulldog Bulldog Drummond was the great British hero in novels before the war. And Mike Hammer obviously was the hero of the Mickey Spillane novel. So that integration of how he created Bond by taking the suaveness, the upper classness, the intelligence uh, and uh confidence of Bulldog Drummond and tying it to the masculinity, the violence and the sexuality of uh, Mike Hammer, it was a great way towards uh, joining um, or creating those different and opposing traits to create a new character. Uh, James Bond. Sorry, I've got so excited by that that I forgot <laughs> your question. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely kind of went down a rabbit hole and my writing partner and I have later we kind of shaped some characters around uh, Mike Hammer kind of after reading some of those. Well, so this show, I've done 400 and some episodes now. The idea is where creativity meets productivity. What are your thoughts on like creativity and imagination? Creative, creativity, imagination. It's in, if you look at all the great writers in history, you know, it doesn't, you know, from uh, Sophocles to Shakespeare to Ibsen to Ian Fleming to Ayn Rand to um, uh, Rostan, Hugo, all of them, they had an incredible level of imagination So, and, and, and creativity. So what is that? Now, this thought is not original to me. This is, is well known in the universe. But it, it's as I said, if you can define things, it gives you a handle, it gives you a hold on something and you can focus it and control it much better. So imagination is basically taking old things and integrating them, integrating them into something new. So that's what uh, Ian Fleming did, for example. He took um, the idea of a, a suave upper class type of person who is a gourmand, but is also a brutal, a blunt instrument, as Fleming called him, is also uh, sexually active and a great lover, he's also a, a, a spy and, and so forth. So he took all of those elements and created a James Bond. And Star Trek, we saw um, how uh, Roddenberry created. Uh, Captain Kirk, who was based partly on Horatio Hornblower, the great action hero from uh, the, the 30s and 20s and so forth uh, in novels. So, and then tied in a lot of other things as we discussed with Roddenberry. So the key is, it's the, you know, as I said, the mental ability to integrate known things into new configurations or combinations. So that's what a writer has to work on consciously or give his subconscious orders and directions to be able to do that so a writer can create something new. If you really want to write a great story, a good story, or rise up in our industries, you know, film, novel, entertainment, and so forth, you have to always, it's the first thing to do is with your concept, you have to have something new, some kind of new angle. And that's why the ones that have the most creatively new angles, such as a Star Wars or a Jaws or a Jurassic Park or a Bond and so forth, they are the ones that explode into the universe because they've got something new. Harry Potter. Hmm. So for those listening, I think that the best place to contact you is probably LinkedIn. You're very active there. You've also got a writing tips newsletter. If someone is ready for a script consultant, you've got a free strategy call. What does that look like? How does that kind of, what can they expect from a call like that? 
It depends what they want. If they want me to do the script, that that's not the, the free option, but um, because you know that's 120 pages of hours and hours of work. But one f- option I would really enjoy to offer some of your listeners is that uh, everything starts in the concept. If you don't get a good concept, you're not going to get a good story. If you don't get a, a good theme, you're not going to be able to move a, an audience, make them feel emotional emotional during the story, especially the climax. So everything comes down to that concept. 99% of stories fail because the concept was never developed right. That's not from me. That's not some great insight from this a writer slash editor that's just commonly known in the industry so i i would like to work with and meet some of your uh, listeners and so i would offer uh, say uh, a 15 minute to, to 30 minute uh, free uh, discussion on uh, over the internet you know on the phone or skype or whatever to help them develop their concepts so it's when we're pushing towards something that's got some original angle that's got a hook that's um, it's clearly structured with a driving protagonist and so forth. So I would make that offer and probably the best way they can t- contact me is through you or through, if I can give my e- simple email address, scottm100 at gmail.com. And, you know, I'm very happy to help them. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.